Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We'll be finishing up chapter 3, moving into chapter 4 this morning. Before we get into the text, I want to give you a little illustration. Um, parents of, of toddlers find themselves saying no all, all the time. You know, we really don't want to be saying no all the time, so we try to move all the no's up, out of reach. So if you go into the house of a parent that has toddlers, there's a lot of stuff that's, you know, it's up out of reach or it's put away, and you can tell the house of somebody who doesn't have toddlers, there's lots of breakable stuff down low that kids can walk by and smash, that kind of thing. So, so we try to put things up and out of reach. I tried to, to uh, find for you a good visual illustration of this. I scoured the internet for uh, photos, and I found many, but this was my favorite. Now... My, my favorite part of this picture is that it exists. Okay, so think about it. You know, the baby goes over, takes a big drink out of the dog's water bowl, and rather than running and pulling the kid away from the water bowl, the parent runs to get the camera, right? So that's, I, just that it exists is a, is a wonderful picture. Uh, I, I'm not going to name any names, but I know a, another uh, little boy, when he was a toddler, he walked through his grandparents' house, and uh, he walked past their coffee table, and there was a coaster sitting there, one of those sandstone coasters, you know, it was sitting there, and he walked by, he looked at it, he picked it up and went, smash, and threw it on the ground and just kept walking. And I thought, you know, what's going through his mind? And, you know, was anything going through his mind? And you find yourself as a parent, you're, you're saying all kinds of ridiculous things to yourself, like, stop being so childish. They can't. I mean, they're, they're, they are. They're children. That's what they do, Right? grow up. Would you grow up? I'm trying to, you know, as fast as I can. And so parents create rules. They create boundaries because children need boundaries. They need a definite line drawn and the consequence for crossing that because they're children. The fact that they need these laws or rules or regulations demonstrates their level of maturity or lack of maturity. And that's kind of what Paul has been driving at in the book of Galatians. Living under the law is not a manifestation of maturity. The Judaizers were proclaiming that this was a demonstration of maturity, that they were going back under the law, that they were living by the rules of the Mosaic law. And Paul says, no, that is a demonstration of immaturity. And he's not necessarily talking about individual Israelites, but what he's saying is the law pertained to a time period of immaturity in God's redemption history that he was working out. That was the time of immaturity. But now we've moved to a time of maturity. So don't go back and live under the law. Last week, Matt walked us through a few of the purposes of the law. Paul doesn't go into all of them. There are many purposes of the law. But Paul lists a couple just for the sake of his argument. And I'd like for us to quickly go back and review those to get us into our section this week. So I want you to look with me in chapter 3 and verse 19. Paul says, why the law then? Anticipating the question, what's the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through the angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. One of the first and primary purposes of the law was to reveal our need. Or, to state it negatively, to reveal the level of our sin. 
The law was this pristine white backdrop against which the bold and dark strokes of sin could be clearly seen. The law was, as Paul said, never intended to impart life. The law couldn't make us right with God. It couldn't put us into a right relationship with God, nor did the law have the power to transform character. What the law did was it revealed sin. It made sin obvious. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. The word for transgression means uh, like to step over a known boundary. It made that very clear. Not to impart life, to, but to reveal our need for God to impart life to us. Second purpose of the law was to restrain sin. Chapter 3, verse 23. Paul says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And hopefully Matt made it clear last week that that idea of tutor is not one who's a teacher, but one who is a, a manager. Uh, in, in the Greek home, uh, a child went from being cared for by the mother when they were older, had a pedagogue or something more like a nanny. And then from the nanny to a teacher or a didaskalos, and then later on to uh, becoming an adult who would be an heir of the family's wealth and fortune and and name and status and all of that. Paul is saying what the law did is it kept us under that nanny. It kept us um, in that state of immaturity. And for Israel, it was designed to be a restraint or a guardian from sin until Jesus Christ would come and actually remove the debt of sin forever. And so Paul has made that argument that Christ has removed the debt of sin forever by receiving the promises that were given to Abraham. So Jesus Christ, being the perfect seed of Abraham, received the promises from Abraham, and then he passed them on to us. And Paul then takes this excursus and he explains the purposes of the law. Then in chapter 3, verse 26, he comes back to this point that we are in right relationship with God through the promises given to Abraham that were accomplished through Jesus Christ. So let's pick up the flow of thought. Look in chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. So Paul's first point is this. You're not slaves. You're sons. You're in. Because Christ is rightly related to God, and you are rightly related to Christ, you're in. You're sons. You're no longer slaves. He makes this argument in three ways. Look at verse 26 again. He says, first, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. How did this come about? Through faith. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Not that faith saves you. God saves you through faith. When you believe... God takes you and he places you into Christ Jesus. He identifies you with Christ. That's known as spiritual baptism. Look at verse 27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. We hear baptism, we think water, but that's not what Paul has in mind here. He's not talking about water. He's talking about the underlying concept of baptism, which is identification with. 
The moment that you believed, God identified you with Jesus Christ. And he did that through the operation of the Spirit. It's called the baptism of the Spirit. Keep your place here in Galatians and turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Again, he's not talking about water baptism. Water baptism is just a visual illustration of spiritual baptism. So in water baptism, the reason that we immerse is because it's the best visual illustration of what happened to us spiritually. We were dead and separated from God. And then we believed in Jesus Christ. And then we were identified with Christ in his death and burial, going under the water, and then being raised up to new life. That's what Romans 6 is all about. That's spiritual baptism. When, the moment you believe that happened, you may not have felt anything radical. Early church, sometimes the Spirit was poured out upon them and they spoke in tongues and it was amazing. Sometimes uh, that has happened throughout the course of history, but it doesn't always happen. You may not feel anything different whatsoever. It's a transaction, though, that God knows about and that God causes to happen. And in that moment, you are regenerated or born again because you receive the life of Christ. You have eternal life abiding in you. And how did it happen? Well, through faith, not through anything that you do. Okay, You can't earn it. You just receive it. It's a free gift. And then God causes you to be born again. And what he says here, if you look back in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, is that this applies equally to all people. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now Paul's not saying that there are no distinctions anymore. Look around. Okay? You see uh, different ages. You see different genders. You see uh, different races. You see, uh, well you may not see because you can't look in somebody's pocket, but there are some who are rich and some who are poor. They're all all different kinds of distinctions, but what Paul is saying is, in Christ, we all come exactly the same way. We're all leveled before the cross, because we're all equally sinners. It doesn't matter what your race is, and it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, and it doesn't matter what your gender is. We're all leveled before the cross, and we come humbly before the cross, and we say, we bring nothing, Jesus, but we freely receive that gift of eternal life. Thank you for dying for our sins. That's the gospel. And so what you have in the body of Christ is you have all of these distinctions brought together and creating a beauty because there's oneness in Christ. And the most important thing about you and the most important thing about any other person you see is, are they in Christ? And as Christians, we need to begin to train ourselves as we interact with people, as we meet a new person, to think first, are they in Christ? Do they know Jesus Christ? We get so hung up on looking at external things or even at their behavior or how they treat us. And the most important thing about them is, do they know Jesus Christ? Jesus was the perfect illustration of this in his earthly life. How did he treat people? With absolute respect. And it was shocking for his disciples and it was really unnerving for the self-righteous in his culture. Because Jesus interacted freely with women. Rabbis didn't do that in those days. But Jesus let prostitutes touch his feet. And he didn't recoil. He welcomed it. He embraced it. 
He loved them. He interacted with Samaritans, not just Samaritans, but Samaritan women. When his disciples saw this, they didn't know what to do with this guy. There's Jesus sitting by the well talking with a Samaritan who's a half-breed, racially, part Jew, part something else, despised by the Jews. And not only that, she's a woman. Rabbis don't do that. But Jesus did. He interacted with sinful people, tax collectors, the worst traitors of the day. He acted with Greeks, Gentiles. He went in and and had bread with them and and had supper with them. Uh, He allowed lepers to touch him and he touched lepers. He looked at people and he saw them as in relationship with God or out of relationship with God and that was the only thing that mattered to him. And the only thing that really brings this kind of reconciliation in our own culture is not social programs but the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that makes us genuinely and truly one is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? Um, I'm not really into musicals that much, but I love that. I've seen that 30 times. I love all the culture behind it. It's so rich. You know, if you've ever seen it before, he's uh, the Tevye, who's the main character. He has five daughters and he's fairly poor. He's a He's a milkman, and he's a fairly poor guy, but he has five daughters, so he's anticipating five weddings. And uh, his, his first two daughters marry off, and they don't really do it in a conventional manner. But then his third daughter begins to interact with a Russian. And the Russian passes by at one point during the movie and the play and uh, tries to interact with Tevier and tries to reach out and shake his hand, and he goes like this, you know, and touches his hand, and his daughter says, why won't you acknowledge him? Why won't you? He's a human being. And she says, no, he's not one of us. He's not like us. And his daughter says, well, we think differently. And he says, we, there is no we. Okay? There's Jews, and then there's everybody else. So don't ever speak his name again. He doesn't exist to us. I don't want to hear anything about him. There is no we. Never talk to him again, because he is not one of us. We are God's chosen people, and then there's everyone else. If you know the story, she elopes with him. She goes off and gets married, and uh, he tells his wife, she's dead to us. She doesn't exist any longer. That's, that was a long-standing Jewish attitude. There's a, a morning prayer that is recorded. It's from about 150 A.D. A man named Rabbi Judah ben Eli wrote this. Morning prayers, and as you hear it, you'll understand that this was a morning prayer that men said, not women. It says, blessed be he, that is God. Blessed be he that he did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be he that he did not make me a boar, that is an ignorant peasant or a slave. Blessed be he that he did not make me a woman. So every morning, the men would get up, and this is what they pray. Thank you, God, I'm not a Gentile. Thank you, I'm not a slave. Thank you that I'm not a woman. Jesus Christ, those distinctions were eliminated because they all came to Jesus Christ exactly the same way, in complete humility as absolutely needy people, needing the grace of God through Jesus Christ. This applies equally for all. So if you are here today, and perhaps you say, I can't come to Christ because I have so much sin. Or you say, I can't come to Jesus Christ because I don't need him, because I'm really managing fairly well. 
Both of those perspectives are wrong. The reason Jesus Christ died on the cross is because you need him. And there is no other way that you can be reconciled into a relationship with God except through Jesus Christ. Paul says, if there is another way, then Christ died needlessly. But he didn't die needlessly. He died for your need and for my need. And the way that you enter into that relationship with God freely is by saying, God, thank you for giving me Jesus Christ. I believe. It is absolutely that simple. The moment that you do, all debt is removed. And you receive the gift of God's indwelling spirit because you are now placed into Christ through the spirit. It's equal for all. Notice the progression that Paul lays out here. Verse 29. He says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. The promise was given to Abraham. Jesus Christ was the perfect seed of Abraham. So he received the promises that had been given to Abraham, and then he passes them along to us. And so now, we are rightly related to God because of the promises given to Abraham accomplished through Jesus Christ. So Paul's point is, you're in. So relax. Stop trying to go back under the law and earn your way back to God or earn God's approval. He loves you. You are a child of God. You are in his family. And he is the perfect father. That's Paul's second point now. Oh, I wanted to bring in one other verse here I forgot about. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, I thought this is a good summary of the, the inheritance idea. He says, So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that is Peter, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Isn't that beautiful? So if you're in Christ, you are an heir of all things, because Christ is the heir of all things. Now, Paul's second point. We are now heirs, not children. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child... He does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Paul's point is this. Experientially, he says, we as Jews, he's speaking of himself as a Jew, we were really no better off than slaves. Because... A child who is not yet of the age of inheritance, and he's drawing on the culture around him, is basically experientially living out the life of a slave. Now, he's not talking about status. He's talking about experience. Saying you're living as if you are under slavery. Earthly illustration, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's owner or lord of everything. He's under guardians and managers. Again, that's that progression from going from the mother to the uh, pedagogue, who is the nanny, to the teacher, and then finally graduating to being uh, an adult heir when the father says, now you can have the inheritance. Well, the same was true in Jewish culture. That's why the the story of the prodigal son is so radical and shocking. What an impudent son that he would go and say, give me my inheritance now. You just didn't do that. The date's set by the father. The father says, now you may have the inheritance. And Paul says, while we were under the law, it was as if we were living in slavery because God hadn't said yet, now you can have the inheritance. Instead, he says, look in verse 3, so also we, while we were children, that is, while we were under this, this era of law, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now, what Paul means by elemental things there is... Um, 
Uh, in Greek culture, it was just basic principles of life. So uh, when it was referring to literature, it would refer to a letter or a syllable or a sound or a basic word, all these elemental things that would make up an idea. Or the elemental uh, things of the cosmos, the uh, you know, air and fire and water and earth, these elemental principles. Paul says that's what the law was like. Okay, it, was, it was the ABCs. But we're not under the ABCs any longer. Instead, we've been purchased from that burden. Look at chapter 4 and verse 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. When the fullness of time came, the image there is is almost like a glass of water filling up. God is in control of the history of the world, and he's in control of the process of redemption. And when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, That is one who can fully relate to our experience in all things tempted as we are yet without sin. Born under the law, understanding and feeling that burden of living under the rules and regulations of the law and yet doing so perfectly. And why did he do so? So that he might redeem us, literally purchase us out of the marketplace. The images of a slave who's standing on the block And a buyer comes in and bids and purchases and the slave is taken off of the block and removed from the marketplace. And God says, I did that for you and I removed you out of the marketplace into freedom. Now it's interesting throughout Galatians, Paul, he's going to use three separate images to describe the same thing of God putting us into right relationship with him. The first is a judicial analogy. That's justification. The judge looks down from his bench and he declares you to be in right standing with the law. You are declared righteous. That's justification. Now he uses an economic or social image. That is being purchased out of slavery. And then the third analogy that he uses is that of adoption. Being outside of the family of God and then through a contractual process being brought into the family of God. Look again At verse 5, it says, So that he might purchase us out of the marketplace, redeem us from slavery, those who were under the slavery of the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, He's he's talking, he says sons. He doesn't say sons and daughters because sons were the ones who received the inheritance. Clearly, though, he's talking about male and female, right? Because in Jesus Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. But he's talking about receiving the inheritance. And what he's saying is, you were born outside the family of God. You were born into the kingdom of darkness, into another family. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty for your slavery and rescued you out of Satan's kingdom and put you into God's family. Okay, that's adoption. He rescued you. He rescued you. Now, some of you may know, um, my wife and I, have, we have adopted. And uh, I will tell you, when we, when we adopted our baby girl, 
it, I've mentioned this before, it was literally, it was the most powerful emotional experience that I've ever gone through in my entire life. It was absolutely overwhelming. When we went to the hospital and uh, the birth mother handed us our baby girl, you know, and in, in that moment, she became ours. And we took her in our arms and we, we took her home with us. And, and I remember so vividly, you know, walking down uh, the hallway and Tristy had Anna Joy and I had the car carrier and I literally, I just fell against the wall and I slumped down. I, I've never been so emotionally overwhelmed. I couldn't walk. I don't know if you've ever been that overwhelmed by anything. It's the only time it's happened in my life. I couldn't walk. I just couldn't walk. It was just so powerful taking that girl. She became ours. She's, and she is. She's ours. And she'll always be ours. And when I think back on that experience and I reflect, I think, how much more deeply does God feel toward us? That's overwhelming. I, I wish that every single one of you could have, have the joy of that experience. Just so we get some just tiny little inkling of how God feels toward us. You parents, you love your children. You don't love them anything like God loves you. It's not even close. Isn't that overwhelming? That's how God feels toward you. And it's so privileged to be, we're so privileged to be brought into his family. Paul says that now we cry out. And it's the word for, for a loud and passionate cry. We cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word. It's a term of familiarity. It's daddy. We cry out, daddy. And I'll tell you, you know, I hope my kids never call me dad. <laughs> I love it when they call me daddy. I know they'll graduate past that. They'll mature beyond daddy. But I like daddy. Because daddy is this, it's this cry of, of need and dependence. You know, that was rarely used in uh, Jewish literature. Hardly ever did a Jew call God the Father, daddy. Didn't happen. But, you know, Jesus probably used that every time he prayed. Every time you see father in Jesus' prayers, it's, it's almost certainly the Aramaic, Abba. When he was about to go to the cross, he cried out, Daddy. Is there another way to accomplish your purposes other than me going to the cross? It was the term of familiarity. It was daddy. So when the disciples heard Jesus pray, they said, could you please teach us to pray? Because we've never, ever, ever heard anyone pray like you pray. You pray like you actually know God. Like he's actually your daddy. Would you teach us to pray? I want you to set aside for a moment uh, maybe your own images of fatherhood that you received. Because none of us had a perfect father. Maybe you had a very good father. Maybe you didn't have such a good father. But, but if you can, set that aside for a moment and imagine the fatherhood of God. It is absolutely perfect in its strength. God is a strong father. He is a protective father. When you are in his arms, you are safe. He's a father who loves you so much that he provides for your needs. Maybe not all of your earthly needs immediately, but your ultimate need to have life that lasts forever, he has given you in Jesus Christ. Your greatest need is met. He provides, he protects, he trains and transforms. He's not content with us staying as we are. He's moving us to maturity 
And there's genuine affection. There's genuine affection. The way that God feels toward us is so far beyond any human love that we've ever experienced. And that is how God feels toward us. And he accomplished that for us through Jesus Christ. So as we close this morning, what I'd like for us to do, we're going to celebrate communion together. And what I'd like for us to do is just take a few moments and go before God, our Heavenly Father, and say, God, Father, thank you. Thank you, Daddy, that you provided for us perfect access and relationship with you through the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. So let's take a few moments just to meditate upon that. If the men would come forward and serve us, we'll have a few moments just to meditate upon that, and then we'll take communion together. Jesus reminded us the night before he went to the cross that the bread represents his body, broken for us, the physical suffering that he had to undergo as a result of our sin. In gratitude, let's take the bread together. He also reminded us that the cup is a symbol of his blood, a payment for the debt of our sin to release us from the burden of slavery to sin and death. Let's take the cup together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the freedom that we have in him because he's rescued us from slavery to sin and death. Thank you, Father, that he purchased for us an intimate relationship with you so that for all of eternity we will have a Heavenly Father who is good and kind and gracious and powerful. Father, we can rest in your arms because of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Sing of his love. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing love. But this I know with all my heart His wounds have paid my ransom Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have gained from Christ's reward. The reward that he purchased through his suffering and death on our behalf. We gain through his suffering. We gain a relationship with you that lasts forever and father we can leave here this morning just in the security and the confidence that we possess eternal life through jesus christ father we're we're thankful for that this morning with jesus following his model we cry out to you abba father thank you father it's in christ's precious name we pray amen god's richest blessings on you we'll see you next week